Well, friends, I invite you to have your Bibles open at Esther chapter 5, Esther chapter 5, as we consider the whole of this chapter together this morning, the passage that Joy read for us just a few moments ago, Esther chapter 5. I remember during my theology training in Edinburgh, during my first year of theology training in Edinburgh, having a particularly difficult essay set. I wanted to make sure that I was on the right track. I wanted to make sure that I was doing all of the right reading for the essay. So I made an appointment to go and see the, the professor who had set the essay. I won't mention uh, who it was. Feeling kind of smug at my ingenuity, I was sharing with the older students about my plan. And the only response I met with was shock. You did what? You're going to see who? You're taking your life in your hands was a general consensus from the older students. Such was this professor's demeanour, such was this professor's disposition. It was considered an unwise thing to meet him, let alone to go and meet him on your own. It wasn't considered prudent to approach him, let alone approach him by yourself. You're taking your life in your hands going to see him. And by all accounts, that's where we find Esther this morning. She's taking her life in her hands to go and see the king. She's taking her life in her hands to go and plead her people's case before King Ahasuerus. Faced with the edict of Haman, faced with the prospect of the genocide of all of the Jews who live in King Ahasuerus' kingdom, she takes her life in her hand and goes to see the king. Knowing that her uncle and the rest of the Jews are praying, knowing that her uncle and the rest of the Jews are fasting for her or are seeking God's face for her, she takes her life in her hand and goes to see King Ahasuerus. We want to see three things this morning. Think about three things together from this passage. Firstly, we want to see how Esther finds favour in the king's eyes, finds favour in the king's eyes. Secondly, though, we want to see how Haman finds fury at the response of Mordecai. And thirdly, we'll see the solution that Haman proposes to deal with Mordecai, finding favour, finding fury and finding a solution. So firstly then, finding favour, and we see that in the first eight verses of chapter five, finding favour. So last week in chapter 4 with Robin, we saw how Esther instructed Mordecai to get all of the Jews together, to get them to come together and fast and pray, to get them to come together and seek God's face for the situation that was facing them. For her part, Esther said, look, you do that, Mordecai, and I and all of my, my maidens, all of the people who attend me in the palace, we will also fast. And I will go before the king to plead the cause of the people. I will go before the king to see what can be done. The time of the feast was set, notice verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 16. The, the time of the, the fast, sorry, was set for three days. And that sets the scenes for us then as we come to chapter 5, verse 1. Because it's there that we read on the third day. The time for prayer and fasting is drawing to an end. The time set aside by the people for prayer and fasting is drawing to an end. It's time for action. It's time for Esther to put this plan into place. And notice what she does. What are we told? Verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. 
She puts on her robes. She gets herself ready. She adorns herself. She makes herself look appropriate for the role that she's going to be playing. And she positions herself, no doubt, somewhere where the king's going to see her, somewhere where it would be impossible for the king to miss her. She's not taking the, 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 the action of going right into the king's palace. She's not taking the action of, of going before the king because she knows that if she does that, she might die. But rather the image how we have here is of, is of her loitering around the palace. She waits in front of the king's quarters while the king is on the royal throne opposite the entrance of the palace. She waits somewhere where she knows the king will see her, where the king can't really miss her, if you like. Now remember why all of this was necessary. Remember why Esther couldn't just go into the king's palace. Remember why Esther couldn't just go and appear before the king because of this edict that was issued that no one could come before the king unless they were bidden or unless the golden scepter was extended to them. We see that in chapter 4, verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. So that's why all of this is necessary. That's why it's necessary for Esther to kind of loiter here. And notice the wisdom that Esther uses. She doesn't break the rules. She doesn't kind of force the issue by appearing before the king's face. No, rather, she kind of waits somewhere where the king will see her. She dresses in a way that the king will notice her. She stands in a place where the king will see her. She uses all of her earthly wisdom to try and appear before the king. The image I have in my mind here is of a, a young boy or girl waiting outside a music venue to get the autograph of their favourite singer. You know, they wait by the stage door and they might wait for hours on end. They might wear a t-shirt that has the, the name or the picture, or the, the, the face of their favourite singer emblazoned on it in the hope that the singer will notice them, in the hope that the singer will come to them, in the hope that sing, the singer will give them what they desire, which is, of course, the autograph. And the plan works. We see that in verse 2. The king sees her. She wins favour in his sight and he holds out the golden scepter to her thereby granting her permission to enter into his presence, thereby granting her permission to appear before his face. And again, we see the providence of God at work, don't we? God is there directing affairs. God is there working to bring about his desired outcome, his desired end. The king just so happened to see Esther. The king just so happened to be favorably, favorably disposed towards her that day. God brought all of this about. God brought all of these circumstances about to achieve his purpose and his end. It's a truth we see time and time again in Esther. There are no accidents, no coincidences in our lives. Nothing happens to us by random chance or fate or accident. God governs all his creatures to bring about his purpose end. Now, at this point, the problem looks like it's solved, doesn't it? Because the king says to Esther, verse 3, look, what is it that you want? Why are you here, Esther? What is it that you're, you're, you're looking for? What can I do for you? Ask for whatever you want, even up to half my kingdom. 
Now all the commentaries say this was just a, a, an expression. It was a way of showing the king's mercy. It was a way of showing the king's generosity. It was a way of showing the king's rich uh, richness because he didn't really care about anything up to half his kingdom. He could give that away without thinking about it the same way we might give away a pound or whatever today. Now, at this point, of course, we would expect Esther to say, well, look, this is what's wrong, king. This is what I want from you. Do you know about this edict that Haman has issued? Do you know what he has purposed against my people? I am a Jewish woman, and Haman has proposed that all of us Jews be put to death. But she doesn't do that, does she? What does Esther say instead? Verse 4, Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Why don't you come to a feast that I've made ready for you? Obviously the feast goes well. We see that in, in verse 6. After the feast, they're, they're sitting around. They're having a nice uh, glass of wine. Though I think more is implied here. Anytime we've seen the king drinking, anytime we've seen the king imbibing spirits, if you like, it hasn't led to good things, has it? It hasn't ended well. Anytime we've seen the king drinking, we see that he's not a man who makes good decisions when under the influence. Think about chapter one. That chapter revolves around that feast. That chapter revolves around that time of celebration and drinking. That's the decision he makes in chapter one. Remember about Queen Vashti. Chapter three, verse 15. The city's thrown into confusion at the edict of Haman. And yet what do we find the king and Haman doing? They're sitting drinking while the city is thrown into confusion below them. And so here as we come then, the king's drinking once again in verse uh, chapter 5, verse 6. And again he says to Esther, look, what's the point in all this? Why have you prepared this feast? Why have you invited Haman and I to this feast? What's going on? What do you want? Even up to half my kingdom. And yet again, Esther seems to miss an open net, doesn't she? She seems to waste the opportunity that's presented itself before her. Because rather again than saying, look, this is what Haman's decreed. Instead, she says, well, look, verse 7, Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favour in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So she doesn't say anything about the edict. She doesn't say anything about the Jews. Rather, what she says to the king is, look, come back tomorrow. I'll prepare another feast. Uh, and then after that, I'll tell you what it is I want. Come back tomorrow to find out what it is that I really want. Some commentators will read this and they'll say, well, look, what Esther's doing here is putting the king in her debt. That by preparing these two feasts, what she's really doing is making the king obliged to give her what it is that she asks for. I'm not necessarily sure that that's exactly it. I think there's an element of that to it. But I think there's a, a, a more simple, a more basic element to it than that. Esther is getting Ahasuerus to be favourably disposed towards her. Making him remember all of the good things that she's done for him. Making him remember all of the honour which she's shown him. When the time comes tomorrow to find out about Haman's plot, what's going to be foremost in his mind? What's he going to be thinking about? Well, he's going to be thinking about the feast that Esther had prepared for him. He's going to be thinking about the wine that Esther had given him. 
He's going to be thinking about the way that Esther has served him, thus making it more likely that she'll give that he'll give her what it is that she wants. Esther here intercedes. She stands in the place of her people. She represents them before King Ahasuerus. What a wonderful thought it is this morning to know that Jesus is our representative. That he pleads our case from God's right hand this morning. It's a reassuring thought for us as believers to know that Jesus prays for us. Oftentimes, if we're honest, we don't know what to pray for ourselves. Oftentimes, if we're honest, we don't know what the best thing to pray for ourselves is. But the intercessory work of Jesus Christ is tremendous comfort to us. He does know what to pray for me. He does know what is best for me. And he ever lives this morning and he ever sits at God's right hand making intercession for us as his people. Esther's attempts here in some senses are, can be categorised by some as weak. But the Lord Jesus Christ prays for us. He knows us. And he ever lives and intercedes for us. So Esther then firstly finds favour in the eyes of the king. She isn't killed, but the scepter is held out to her. But secondly then, we want to think about Haman finding fury, finding fury. And we see that in verses 9 through 13, verses 9 through 13. So Haman leaves the feast then, we see verse 9. He's walking on air. He's happy as Larry. He, he can't think of a possible situation where he would be any more happy. He's joyful, glad of heart. Not only because of the wine that he's just enjoyed with the king, but I also think that he feels that the lines are falling in pleasant places for him. He can't really imagine how life can be any better, yet there is still one problem. And I think it, it, the, the narrative's constructed for us in such a way as that, that Haman is walking out, he's full of his own self-importance, he's full of how good life is for him, and then he's brought back to the earth. Because he remembers the problem, doesn't he? Verse 9, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. The queen might, he thinks, love him. The king might love him. All of these other officials might be fawning over him. All of these other officials might be greeting him heartily wherever he goes. But there's still this one man. There's still Mordecai sitting in the king's gate, refusing to give him honour. Refusing to give him the honour that he's due. Mordecai doesn't love him. Mordecai doesn't honour him. Mordecai isn't afraid of him. Mordecai doesn't rise or tremble before him. And this makes Haman furious. He's livid. But notice though, what does he do? Verse 10. What are we told about him in verse 10? Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife 
Zeresh. He refrained from laying hands on Mordecai then and there. He refused from taking action in his own hands there and then. Rather, he goes home and he calls together his counsel, if you like. He calls together his advisors, if you like, and he says to them, look, what are we going to do with this Mordecai? Mordecai just won't honour me. Mordecai just won't stand. Mordecai just won't tremble before me. What on earth are we going to do with him? How are we going to solve this problem? And then the tone shifts slightly in, in verse 11, doesn't it? So he's gone. He's happy as Larry coming out of the king's palace. He sees Mordecai. This throws him into a rage. And the tone in verse 11, I think, almost shifts to a tone of self-congratulation. Haman recounted to them, to his advisors and his wife, the splendour of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honoured him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow I am also invited by her together with the king. Look at all the money I have. Look at the splendor of my wealth. Look at all of the offspring that I have. Look at all of the children that I have. Look at all of the heirs that I have. Look at all that I've achieved at work. Look at the way that the king has honored me. Look at the way that I'm above all of the other officials of the king. He's trying to remind himself how great he is. He's trying to remind himself of all that he's accomplished in life. Even Queen Esther, he says, even she honours me. Even she wouldn't let anyone else but me come to the king, come with the king to the feast she prepared. Haven't I done so much? Haven't I achieved so much? I don't know if you like to read obituaries or not. I'm guessing most of you this morning probably don't sit reading the obituaries. But they're fascinating things because you often find out some things about a person that you never knew before. You know, an obituary takes you beyond the kind of the dates of their lives and gives you a little bit of flesh on the bone. It gives you a little bit of an idea about the kind of person that they are. It gives you a chance to see the real person, to get to know their achievements, to get to know some of the surprising things that they might have done. And there's a sense here in which Haman's almost writing his own obituary, isn't he? He said, well, look at all of the great things that I've done. Look at all the children I have. Look at all the advancements I've had in my career. But then we get the sting in the tail in verse 13. But all this, he says, everything I've achieved, all my wealth, all my promotions, all of that, all my honour means nothing to me. As long as I see Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, it all means it's all worthless to me. As long as Mordecai's sitting there. In worldly terms, Haman had everything he wanted, didn't he? He had everything his heart could have desired. He had money, he had wealth, he had power, he had influence. He had children and a wife for companionship. But it didn't satisfy him. It didn't make him happy. Why not? Because he lacked the one thing that he truly needed. Peace with God. All of these other things, all of these other worldly achievements, all of these other worldly advancements that he had meant nothing if he didn't have peace with God. 
all of these other things that he built up for himself meant nothing if he didn't know God for himself. And the same is true for us this morning. Remember the Apostle Paul? He reminded us that all, whatever he considered to his prophet before, he now considered loss for the sake of knowing Christ. That all of these things that he put such store by before were worthless compared to knowing Christ. And that's how it is for us this morning, friends. It might be that you're sitting watching this video and you feel restless. You've done okay in the world's eyes. You've done okay in terms of career. You've done okay in terms of all of the things that seem to matter to the world, but you still feel restless. It might be that you feel restless because you don't know Christ, because you don't know that you have right relationship with God. Maybe as believers, we need to remind ourselves of that, 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 that as everyone else is getting so caught up in making sure they have enough of X, Y, and Z, and maybe we need to remind ourselves that all we have all we need in Christ. Because it's only right relationship with God that can truly satisfy us this morning, can truly make us happy, can bring you true joy this morning. Because all of these other things will ultimately let us down. And once you have that right relationship with God, all of these other things will fall into place. They'll get their true sense of worth. Heman finds fury then at Mordecai's response to him. And finally, thirdly, we want to see the solution that's offered. The solution that's found in verse 14. His wife comes up with the suggestion, look, if Mordecai bothers you that much, if you're so concerned about him, if he's causing you this much stress and angst, if he's as insolent as you say he is, why don't you just kill him? Then you can go joyfully to the feast of the king. If that problem's sorted out, then you can go joyfully with the king to Queen Esther's feast. So he has the gallows built to kill Mordecai. And of course, this takes us to Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Who himself was entirely innocent, the one hanged not on a gallows, but on a cross. The one this morning who finds a solution to our sin, to our separation from God. You see, the people who killed Jesus weren't really that different from Haman. They thought killing Jesus would bring them happiness. They thought killing Jesus would be the solution to all of the problems that they'd encountered. But of course, Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? He rose three days later, having conquered death, sin and the devil once and for all. Jesus was killed so that we might not be. Jesus died so that we might not face the punishment we deserve. Jesus died so the punishment that should have fallen on us instead fell on him. He is our saviour and our redeemer this morning. Esther finds favour in the king's sight. Haman finds fury at Mordecai's response. And the solution he finds will bring him to a sticky end. 